Let's open God's word this evening to Isaiah 43. Isaiah chapter 43, we will read together the first 21 verses, and the text for this evening's sermon will be verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 43. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one of you that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled who be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is true. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared, and I have saved, and I have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinct, they are quenched as tow. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Thus far we read God's word tonight. The text that we will consider is verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. Now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, 
neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. The lot of God's people who live on this earth is that we will suffer trials and afflictions. That is true for every one of God's people. To one degree or another, we will all endure various difficulties we will be required to bear great burdens and there's no escaping it because this is God's will for his people who live upon this earth and because this is God's will for his people that means whole Protestant Reformed Church likewise endures trials and afflictions. And I'm confident of that. Confident of that because you are a part of a denomination that went through a great trial over the last several years and this congregation was certainly impacted And there are some who still feel that very acutely. But more than that, I know there are other trials and afflictions. I do not know all of them by any means. I'm not your pastor. That's a part of the difficulty of being a visiting minister is that you don't know what's going on in the lives of God's people sitting in the pew. But in the short time that I have been here, I've come to know some of the difficulties, some of the hardships, and knowing that there are no doubt many, many more, some great, some small, I bring this word of God this evening. This was not the sermon I originally packed in my backpack to preach as the fourth sermon for whole Protestant Reformed Church, but one that I decided to dig up when I came to know various things. Because this passage is a word of comfort. A word of encouragement. And that it teaches us that though we must face trials and difficulties, that is, though we must pass through the waters and walk in the midst of fire, our God is with us. Our Redeemer is ever present. And He will keep us from being destroyed in the midst of them. And will ultimately use the very trials and afflictions that we face for our good. So, with that in mind, let us consider Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, using as our theme passing through the waters. First, we will look at the fiery trials. Second, we will look at the Redeemer's presence. And then third, the good purpose or the loving purpose. Passing through the waters, the fiery trials, the Redeemer's presence, and the loving purpose. Part of what makes Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2 so memorable is are the illustrations that it uses regarding our trials and afflictions. It likens them to passing through the waters and walking in the midst of the fire. That's verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. There are two illustrations that are part of the text. On the one hand, there is the illustration of passing through the waters. And the waters here refer to a raging river. 
we need to think of a fast-moving torrent that is flooding the banks. And we need to put ourselves not just on the, the shoreline as one who must make our way across, but one who is in the midst of that river, battling for our lives, trying to get to the other side. That's the one illustration. And the other illustration is just as dreadful in that it speaks of walking in the midst of the fire so that whether it's a forest fire, whether it's a house caught on fire, we are placed in the midst of that fire with the flames all around us encroaching upon us so that we can feel the the hot heat upon our skin. It's painful. And somehow, some way, we must get out of the flames. Two illustrations. And what's so noteworthy is this is how God Himself is describing the, the difficulties that we face. And that's so striking because both fire and water are destructive forces. We see and know that by our own experience. We can see the various news reports of the great damage that a flood can cause when it comes upon a land or a a tsunami that comes crashing up upon the shoreline. Water is a destructive force. But so too is fire. And that we can see news reports of fires burning thousands if not millions of acres of forest. We can see how a, a fire can take a building and reduce it to nothing but ashes. These are destructive forces. And that's not just what we can see and experience, but that's, that's what we see in Scripture. So that a part of the symbolism of water and fire is this destructive character that they have. Think about it. Two different times, God is going to destroy this earth. The first time, He did it with water. In the days of Noah, He sent that great flood to destroy the earth as it existed then so that in 2 Peter 3 verse 6 we read that the earth perished in the flood. That was the first time God destroyed the earth but then he's going to destroy the earth a second time when Christ comes again. First time he used fire. The the first time he used water. The second time he will use fire even as we're taught in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. The elements of the earth shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And so these are destructive forces. And now the Spirit Himself through Isaiah takes these two ideas and applies them to the trials that we face. And that all by itself is noteworthy. Because it means that Scripture in no way minimizes the pain, the difficulty of the trials and afflictions that we face. God's Word to us this night is not, well, it's not really that big of a deal what you're facing, you know. You know, if you just toughen up a little bit and get through it, That's not God's Word. God Himself recognizes the pain, the difficulty, the severity of the trials that we face. And we do face them. And we will continue to face them. But that's really a promise that's a part of this text. For the language of Isaiah 43, verse 2 is not, if thou passest through the waters. The language is not, if thou must walk through the fire. But it's when. When thou passest through the waters and when thou walkest through the fire. The point is, this is going to happen. We need to expect this. This is a part of God's will for His people upon this earth. Yes, there are also the the seasons of joy and prosperity in which we can be thankful, but 
always alongside of that, there are the days of trial and affliction. And it's in the midst of those trials that when we come to a passage like this, we can say, yes, this is an apt description. Yes, that's exactly what it feels like at times. For the trials that can come upon us can make us feel as though we're being swept away by a raging river, taking us downstream ever closer to danger. We've lost our footing. We have no control over what's going on around us. Or at other times, the trials that we face are like being put in a fiery furnace. There's the discomfort. There's the pain. There's the struggle. The child of God can say, in the midst of trials and afflictions, that's this, this is indeed an apt description. And it's on account of those trials that we often become afraid. That is, after all, our natural response. That's our, our default. And how we interact with the trials that we face. And that comes out in the injunction that's found in verse 1. In verse 1 of the passage, we read, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. And if you were paying especially close attention as we read the chapter, you will notice that that injunction, fear not, occurs multiple times throughout the chapter. And if we ask the question, why does God go on repeating it again and again and again? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Well, it's because that's what we need to hear. That's our natural, that's our default response to the, the difficulties that we face is that we often become afraid. So that when we're in the, the midst of that raging river, we, we wonder how much deeper are the waters going to get? I'm not sure I can keep my head above the water if it gets any worse. Or when, or when we are in the midst of the fire, we wonder how much hotter is it going to get? How much closer are the flames going to come? Trials make us afraid. They keep us up at night. Our thoughts consumed by everything going on in our lives. And at times they can so overwhelm us that we find ourselves unable to go about our normal work. Our hearts so preoccupied with the, the difficulty that has come upon us that we feel crippled, we feel paralyzed. Fear is our natural response to the trials that we face. And what compounds that fear is the knowledge that at times those trials and those difficulties are sent upon us on account of our sin. Now when we say that, we need immediately to qualify that and make clear that's not always the case. It's not always the case that a trial or affliction is sent as some direct chastisement upon us. And we can say that on the basis of God's Word. There are two clear examples, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that show us that not every trial is linked to a specific sin. The Old Testament example is Job. God himself and his evaluation of Job was that he was a, a perfect and an upright man, one who eschewed evil, and therefore we know that what follows in the rest of the book of Job was not on account of a particular sin in Job's life that God was addressing. The New Testament example is that man, that blind man in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind. The disciples assumed that his blindness was on account of someone's sin. And their only question was, well, it was, was it his parents who sinned or was it he who sinned? Tell us, Jesus. 
And Jesus' response was to say, neither of them. Jesus' response was, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So what those two examples teach us is that not every trial or affliction is sent as a direct chastisement for a specific sin. And therefore, when there is some trial in our lives, we need not automatically assume that, well, God is angry at me for this sin or for that sin. But now with that qualification in place, and with a desire to do justice to the passage in front of us, we must recognize there are times that God does send a particular hardship as a form of discipline. And that comes out from the historic context in which the prophecy of Isaiah was originally given. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah who was a wayward and backsliding nation who was given over to idolatry and whatever worship they did give to God was merely in an external form. They were simply going through the motions and though God sent prophets to rebuke them, they persisted in their sin. And so God sent a great affliction. He raised up the Babylonians to come upon God's people as a form of chastisement. And thus the nation of Judah quite literally had to walk in the midst of fire. For Jerusalem was destroyed with fire. And whoever lived through it were then carried away into captivity. And all that on account of their sin. And there are times that God deals with us that way too. No doubt that was true of the chastisement that he brought upon the PRC. As churches, we have sins, we have weaknesses. And our God brought us very low to humble all of our pride. And at times he deals with us as individuals that way too. We walk in sin impenitently. There may well be consequences for that sin. When that's true, He will make that clear to us. It's not the case that we need to ask, well, is this all coming upon me because of a a sin? I'm not sure. Because our Father, if He's going to discipline us, if He's going to chasten us, He will make the the connection between the, the sin and the chastisement obvious. It'll be clear so that we're not left wondering. We're not left guessing, is this because of some sin? Are you angry at me on account of this or that? He doesn't leave us guessing. But as a good father, he makes it painstakingly clear that this chastisement, this affliction is directly connected to a particular sin. But now, whether or not it's linked to a particular sin, or if it's of a more general character, either way, the fact that there is this connection to sin leaves us with a burning question. In the midst of the the trials and in the midst of the afflictions, we, we might well wonder, was God sending this upon me to destroy me? These are destructive forces after all. Does that mean that that's his will? That's his, that's his intent here? Is God saying to me through this child, through this trial, you are not my child anymore? Is he trying to tell me that, that he's done with me, that I've sinned one too many times and now he's casting me aside? And I say that's the burning question. Because there's nothing more frightening in all the world than the thought of God forsaking us and abandoning us. But over against 
that thinking, there's the comforting promise of this passage. That for His people, God does not send the trials, the afflictions for their destruction. But He Himself is with us in the midst of them. That is, our Redeemer is present. Our Redeemer's presence. And that's promised to us in verse 2. Verse 2 we read, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. That's His promise. His promise is not, I will take you out of the trial, or I'm going to remove this hardship altogether. We sometimes want that. Sometimes that's what we desire in our hearts. God, if only you'd let up a little bit. If only you'd make my life easier. But God nowhere promises us that He will make our lives easy. You may search the Scriptures from beginning to end. You will not find that promise. His promise is not, I'll take you out of the trial or the trial away from you. But His promise is, I will be with you. And He is indeed present with us in the midst of the trials. He's present with us because He has sent His own Spirit to live and to dwell within us. We have the, the Spirit of Christ Himself sent by our Savior to live and to dwell within our hearts to, to give us new life, but then also to, to strengthen us and to uphold us so that we have His grace at all times. And in that way, in that form, Christ Himself, our Redeemer, is present with us by His Spirit. And He's also present by means of His Word. The Word as it's preached, but then also as the, the Word as it's written upon our hearts as the, the Spirit takes that Word and applies it to our hearts. He's with us. He's present. And note well, He's present in the trial itself. Isaiah 43, verse 2 says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. So that the idea is not, well, he's on the other side of the river, and he's shouting to us, well, if you can make it across, I, I, I'm here to help you. I'll pull you to shore. Nor is it, well, if you get close enough, then I can throw you a lifeline and I'll, I'll drag you in. That's not the idea. Nor is it that, well, you're, you're in this house caught on fire and if you can, you can somehow break through the flames, if you can jump over them, I'm there to catch you on the other side. That's not the Word of God here. Because the Word of God is He's with us in the trial itself. He's with us in the midst of that raging river. He's with us in the midst of the fire. And it's exactly for that reason that it's impossible that these trials, these afflictions ultimately serve our complete destruction, that they overwhelm us entirely. And that's what comes out in the, the language of the rest of the verse. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. I'm not going to let you drown. And then with the fire, he says, and when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And we ask, how is that possible? That I, I, I might pass through the, the river and walk in the midst of the fire and yet not be drowned, not be burned? And the explanation is because he's right there with us. He's in the midst of the trial. Upholding us, caring for us, guarding us, defending us. You see, for the river or the waves or the fire, the heat, to ever overwhelm us, to ever consume us, it would first have to overwhelm Him. It would first have to consume Him. 
And we all recognize that's impossible. We're talking about our Savior here, our sovereign Savior, who is God Himself, but what is more, He is the one who's sovereign over the trials themselves. He's in control of it. So that the waters will not get one inch deeper apart from His will. The flames will not get one degree hotter unless He Himself decrees it. And even if He does allow it, He's still there with us, holding us in His hands, wrapping us up in His arms, caring for us, and thus promising us, I'm not going to let you drown. I'm not going to let you be consumed by the flames. And congregation, know that you may be confident in that promise. And our confidence, our assurance, is that we are His covenant people who now belong to Him. And that's what verse 1 especially brings out. There's the promise, He will be with us, our Redeemer is going to be present, and now our assurance, our confidence of that is rooted and grounded in verse 1. Verse 1 reads thus, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have Redeem thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. And what verse 1 does is teach us about all the work that God performs in order to make us his people. It includes his work of creating us. But now, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee. And now, certainly, that includes our physical creation. He gave us our life and our breath. But ultimately, what's in view here is our spiritual recreation. The fact that He took us who were dead sinners, who had no life in us and made us alive. He gave us the very life of Christ so that the Spirit took the life of Christ and implanted that, injected that into our hearts to make us alive again so that He could say, I've created you. But His work is not just that. His work includes redeeming us. That's the second thing that's said here. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. A reference to the work of Jesus Christ who purchased us to Himself. Not with gold, not with silver, but by His own precious blood. He paid the ransom so that we who were enslaved to sin, we who were in bondage to the devil, have been set free, we've been liberated, we now belong to our faithful Savior. He has redeemed us. He's our Lord. But now it's not only that He's created us, it's not only that He's redeemed us. Third, we read, I have called thee by thy name. He's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He's powerfully and irresistibly drawn us to Himself. And He's done this by name, the text says. By name, because in all eternity, He set His love upon us and chose us as individuals so that He now has our names written upon the palms of His hand. And now the result of all this is we belong to Him. That's how the verse concludes. That's what it's all building up to. The very end of the verse is, Thou art Mine. Because I have created you. Because I have redeemed you. Because I have called you. The result is you belong to Me. You're Mine. You're you're My precious possession. And in harmony with that, He takes His name and He places it upon us. And that's the significance of that change in name that we find at the beginning of the verse. Isaiah 43, verse 1 begins, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. There's a change there. 
And now we recognize that Jacob and Israel are the same person in the Old Testament and that the descendants of this Jacob are, is really the whole nation. But yet the fact that it goes from Jacob to Israel is significant. Because you remember, Jacob is the, the original name given to the chosen son of Isaac and Rebekah. But that later on in life, his, his God gave him a new name. His original name just meant heel holder. But then God gave him a different name, the name Israel. And what God was doing was placing his own name upon Jacob. Because the L, the E-L at the end of Israel is the name for God. So that God took his name and put it upon one whom he had chose to be one of his covenant children. And does not God do that with us? We have the very name of Christ applied to us. For we're called Christians after the name of our Savior. Like a husband gives to his wife his last name, so Christ gives his name to us. He places it upon us. We are his bride. And you understand that the point of all of this then is that we can be absolutely certain he will ever be with us. Think about all that he's done in creating us and redeeming us and calling us and making us his people. He's not now going to let us fall by the wayside when a trial comes. He's not going to let us slip through his fingers when we're in the midst of that, that raging river, but he's going to hold on to us because we're dear to him. He has set his love upon us. He gave his life for us. And therefore, we may be absolutely certain he will be with us. Not just when we make it through this life to, to heaven above, but he's with us now in the midst of the trials themselves. Now, if that's the case, perhaps you wonder, well, then why do I have to go through with all this? Why must we pass through the waters and why must we walk in the midst of fires? If he's going to uphold us and strengthen us the whole time, if, if he's going to protect us the entire time, why make us go through it at all? Why can't he just sort of bypass all the trials? The answer is that he has a good and loving purpose. A good and loving purpose. And that good and loving purpose is not to destroy, but to purify. Negatively, his purpose is not to destroy. And what a word of comfort that is. Because understand that for the wicked who reject Jesus Christ, that is his purpose. In sending pain and difficulty into their life, it serves their downfall, it serves their destruction. And that's evident from the context. We read Isaiah 43, but if we had started our reading in Isaiah 42 and then read into Isaiah 43, we might have been scratching our heads as we did so. Because if we back up into Isaiah 42, verse 25, the very preceding verse, this is what we read. Therefore he hath poured upon him, and the him here is Israel, Jacob. Therefore he, God, hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire roundabout, yet he knew not, and it burned him. Yet he laid it not to heart. So in Isaiah 43, 42, verse 25, we read of Israel, Jacob, being burned. 
But then two verses later, we read, you're going to walk in the midst of the fires, but you're not going to be burned. And when we read these two verses side by side, we wonder what on earth is going on here. Is he burned or is he not burned? How do we reconcile these two verses? And the explanation is that within the nation of Judah, there was both an elect remnant as well as many who were wicked unbelievers. For the elect remnant, they would be brought to repentance. The Babylonian captivity would be used to wake them up out of their spiritual stupor. They would see the seriousness of their sin and apprehending that there's mercy to be found would seek forgiveness. But for the wicked, the Babylonian captivity was their destruction. They would only be hardened in their sin. And whatever pain and suffering they endured when the Babylonians came was only the beginning of the suffering they would endure for all eternity. For the wicked, the trials, the pain, the hardships are their destruction. But not for God's people. And they are not for us. Because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. For you see, our Savior... does something that no one else could possibly do. And that He separates the destructive force, the wrath of God, from the trials and afflictions. You see, normally there's no separating those two. If you think of water, the destructive power of water is that it drowns. And for any one of us to be put underwater for a long period of time would result in our death. There's, there's no separating the, the water from its destructive power. And the same holds true of fire. The destructive power of fire is that it burns, it, it consumes. And if one of us was to be placed in fire, that's the result that would inevitably come upon us. We would be burned. We would be consumed. But now Jesus Christ is the only one who's able to separate those. To pull the the destructive power out of the trials and afflictions. That is to, to separate the wrath of God out of them. And if we ask how, the answer is at the cross. Consider, congregation, the cross of Jesus Christ in light of the language of Isaiah 43, verse 2. When Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for those three hours of darkness, He was drowning under the waves and the billows of God's wrath. He had to pass through the waters. Really more than that, He had to drink the waters. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath every last drop. And what did He say when He finished? I thirst. Because what else would you say after enduring the fiery wrath of God, the very agonies and torments of hell itself? He took the destruction upon Himself. He took the drowning. He took the burning. That is, He took the wrath of God upon Himself. 
And in doing so, he, he separated that out of the trials and the afflictions that we now face. Do you see it, congregation? Do you see now why the rest of the verse reads as it does? Isaiah 42, verse 3. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Why not? Because Christ took the destroying power out of it. And then the verse continues, and through the rivers they shall, or when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Why not? Because he was burned. Because the, the flame of God's wrath was kindled upon him. That's why. And that then completely changes the trials, the afflictions that we face. So that they're not sent to destroy. And we have such a vivid illustration of this. When we go back to that history of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Children, do you remember those three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Daniel's three friends, right? And do you remember how the king wanted them to bow down to that, that golden image, that tall golden image that he had built? But those three friends refused to do so. They were not going to worship anyone other than God. And what happened to them for it? Well, the king had his fiery furnace heated up seven times hotter and had those three men thrown into it. But now children, do you remember what the king saw when he looked into that furnace? Daniel 3, verse 25 tells us, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Notice the parallels. God's people... Subjected to a fiery trial. Thrown into a fiery pit. But they're not alone. Christ himself is with them. Not on the outside encouraging them. But in the trial itself. Protecting them. Shielding them. So that though the flames are all around them, they are not burned. They are not consumed. And that's exactly what he does for us. Though we must walk through the fire, in the midst of the fire, though we must pass through the waters, he is with us. And he will keep them from destroying us. So his purpose, congregation, is not to destroy. Instead, it's to purify. And that positively is his purpose. We've explained the negative not to destroy. The positive is his purpose is to purify, to refine, to sanctify. For is that not the other idea, the, the other part of the biblical idea of these two elements? When we look at the pages of Scripture and ask, what do we see? What do we learn about fire and water? Well, part of it is they're both destructive forces, but that's not the whole of it. The other part of it is they're both used to purify. Because water is used to wash, to make clean. And fire is used to, to refine, to purify, so that metals are thrown into fire and they're, they're refined. All the dross is burned away and they come out all the more pure. Well, so it is for us. God's people, when we must 
pass through the waters, when we must walk in the midst of the fire, God's purpose is exactly that, to purify you. Now that does not take away from the pain. Being subject to fire is painful. Even if the end result is being refined. But knowing this helps us to see the heart of our God. This was his purpose for Judah. In bringing them into captivity. His purpose was to lead them to repentance. To lead them to cry out unto him and ultimately to bring them back. And that's his purpose with us. To purify us. Which is to say to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. To conform us to the image of His own Son. And it's when we understand and know that. Really everything that we've learned. That He's with us. That He's caring for us. And that He's ultimately purifying us. It's when we have all of that in view that we can finally heed that injunction of verse 1. Fear not. Whole Protestant Reformed Church, do not be afraid of the waters, of the fires. But instead, trust your Redeemer is with you. And in his love for you, he will care for you and bring you safely through that you might shine forth like gold. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank and praise thee for thy word as it gives us such comfort. And we pray that thou wilt indeed apply this word unto our hearts. Encourage us, build us up. And direct our faith to Jesus Christ, even as we face many trials and afflictions here below. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.